0: Jerry and Tracy, Polly, and their dog, Ninja.
1: Hey guys, welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories at Midweek, episode number 19. Uh, this show, we've got J.J. Crane. We told you a little bit about him last week. He's an author. He's got uh, several books out, several more coming, and great personality. He used to work on the Ricky Lake Show. Oh, At really? Like nice. So, but yeah, he did a lot of TV stuff and and mm-hmm. springboarded into good for uh, him being an author. So, the story that we're going to talk about tonight, it's a cemetery story.
0: Okay, it's pretty
1: cool. It's called the Silver Cliff Lights.
0: Sounds interesting.
1: So silver was discovered in 1880 in Wet Mountain Valley in Colorado. Prospectors, as you can imagine, they flocked to this area in Colorado. And soon the town of Silver Quick was born and had about five thousand people. Okay. From nothing to five thousand people. The silver soon ran out though, and the town dwindled down to about a hundred people. Now above this town, up on a hill, was a graveyard. Strange happenings have been reported in this graveyard all the way back from when the first bodies were actually buried there. The first was reported by a group of miners. Now They saw faint blue lights floating above each grave. Their stories were pretty much, I guess, poo-pooed, though, because they had just left one of the local saloons and may have been a little bit tipsy. Mm -hmm. So nobody wanted to, uh, you know, take the word of some drunk people, miners, (laughs) that said they go by and happen to see some lights soon though some sober citizens started to see these lights in 1956 though, the west mountain tribune wrote a story about the lights in 1967 the new york times wrote a story about it so they're starting to pick up some steam this brought a bunch of tourists to come see the ghost lights the town began to grow again two years later edward linehan from National Geographic, wrote an article about his own experiences there in the small town. So the night that he arrived to town, uh, one of the locals by the name of Bill Klein drove Lenihan out to the graveyard. They no sooner got there than they turned the car's headlights off and Klein started pointing and said, There they are. You see them? They're right over there. And he did see them. Round spots of bluish-white light. Above Ooh. all of the graves. Linehan stepped towards one of these lights, but it disappeared. But then it started gradually reappearing again. He points his flashlight towards it, but all he could see was an old headstone. They spent the next 15 minutes looking around trying to find an exclamation. Where could these lights be coming yeah. from? Mm-hmm. Klein told Linehan that most of the people... Think that it was from the town's lights reflecting up there or the lights from nearby Wetcliff. Linehan pointed out though that these two towns were so far away and they were so small there's no way that they could have caused this phenomenon. Klein pointed out that he and his wife have seen um, the lights going on here when there was a really thick fog. So if there was a really thick fog, there's no way there could have been a reflection that where you yeah, could barely see
0: right. with your hand
1: in front of your face. There's no way that you could have seen the uh, the stuff coming from the two towns. The lights still appear today. Some think that the lights are um, from produced by some kind of radioactivity, but nothing shows up if somebody brings a Geiger counter out there to check it out. So that's, that can't be the case. Another thought is that the Cheyenne... And other Native American shamans would actually go up when they were on their deathbed to a hill that they would call Death Hill when it was time for them to pass on. They would sit on the hill and just wait until the spirits would come and take, be taken from them. Oh, man. So a number of Native American tales mention dancing blue spirits in these locations. Old timers from the area, though, they think the lights are something else. They think it's the lanterns. From the dead miners that are still looking for oh, silver up there. Oh wow. So that's cool. I thought it was kind of cool. I think I like the lander's part the better. And I think if I if I remember correctly, and I, I didn't write this down, but there was I read a, a bunch of different things on this. I think they actually only buried three people there. In and that it, cemetery? Yeah, and it was like the three people that were part of the fa- the guy who founded the cemetery. He built put three people there, and it was all members of his family, and nobody else was ever buried there. You, oh my gosh! I could be wrong on that, but that's that's wow. If not that, that's another cemetery. But I read a bunch of cemeteries. Yeah, so I could be thinking of the wrong cemetery. Yeah, so. that's kind of weird. Just to have like three people in your cemetery, I guess. I mean, yeah. Well, there's one out there that's that. It might not be this one. Though, oh yeah, I might have got my cemeteries mixed. Yeah, up. but I'm the rest sure. of the stuff I know is fact. Uh huh. So oh well. Well, that was interesting. All right. Let's listen to J.J. Crane. Hey guys, I got a treat for you tonight on uh, this edition of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I had the privilege of doing uh, CryptidCon back in September and got to meet a lot of fantastic people there. And one of the people that I got to spend a little bit of time with was author J.J. Crane from out of New Jersey. J.J.'s got four books on the market right now and each one of them are very cool on their own rights uh, They have cool backstories, and we're going to get into some of those backstories. But first of all, I wanted to uh, welcome J.J. Crane to the show. J.J., thanks for coming on.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm um, glad to be here.
1: We've been trying to make this work for a little bit, and with both of us having busy schedules and the holidays, it took <laughs> us a little bit longer to get to it than what we initially planned, but... Um, yeah, we're here now. That's right. Here, <laughs> we'll make the best of it. So right.
0: We'll start the new year off right.
1: Tell me a little bit about you, JJ. I know you started off um, you know doing a little bit of some other stuff and, and got into the television a little bit and now you're an author. Tell me how you made that leap from beginning to, to where you're at now.
0: Well, I, I worked in television for uh, 20 years, 25 years, started off as a cameraman, worked my way up into uh, doing a lot of uh, writing and directing uh, commercials. I was doing stuff with MSNBC. I worked with Ricky Lake for a while. I will do news promotions and stuff. And then shortly after 9-11, a lot of the work that I was doing in the entertainment business here in the New York area just went away because everyone went all news. And I was working mostly entertainment. And so I was left scrambling as were many other people. And, uh, my wife, my wife and I were, were having a baby so she Said, "Why don't you just do some freelance work? We'll we'll have you be the stay-at-home parent." And so I started doing that. So I started doing a little more photography. I started getting into writing, and then I always wanted to write a book. So I sat down and started to write *The Jersey Devil*, and it it was not an easy go, as anyone who's tried to write a book would know. Um, There was a lot of you know starts and stops, and and all this, all that happened. But in time, I eventually just developed the discipline and sat down and wrote The Jersey Devil. It was kind of a... I'd written a short story a long time ago, and I wanted to take the short story and make it into a novel. Well, the novel just became an entirely different thing than the short story. But for whatever reason, it was always The Jersey Devil, because I'm from Jersey. You know, the the folklore of The Jersey Devil is so um, big here. I mean, you know, we have a hockey team named after it. And, um, and so I just went with that and just wrote the Jersey devil. It took a long time, but once I got the discipline down on how to, you know, go about writing a book, I just kept writing.
1: You know, it's funny because like you mentioned the, uh, the hockey team, you yeah. know, I've been a sports fan my entire life been a paranormal fan my entire life. And I never made that connection until probably <laughs> three years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Jersey devil. That's it. So it's, te- a, it's a, it's a, it's, yeah. No, so, so tell me a little bit about the book itself. You know,
1: it, it's a, it's a fictional book, correct?
0: Yeah, well, it's a fictional book. So the book takes place in the Pine Barrens. There are some strange, bizarre killings that are occurring there, and this detective is on the case. And of course, the detective doesn't have any inkling of a Jersey Devil. He's just trying to solve this these bizarre murder cases as he's looking at them and uh there's this paranormal journalist who who's reading about these things and then doing a little investigating on her own she goes you know these things line up some of the way these killings are going on they line up very much with some of the um with some of the tales of what happens with the jersey devil when it was killing farm animals and things like that and this is just taking another leap and so of course this guy doesn't think so but they wind up meeting because she she starts putting some dots together that become interesting for him to look into but he's following other leads until they wind up encountering the jersey devil on their own while they're following a lead that he had an escaped lunatic is what i wrote in here some guy who had been, uh, had some mental issues and, and some violence in his past. And then they tracked him down because he had escaped from a place. And then in that encounter, they come across the Jersey Devil. And then they both realize, oh, <laughs> there's a whole different world going on to here. So that takes the investigation into something else. And it turns out that, you know, one of them has a history that goes way back with the Jersey Devil itself. So that's a cool so concept. It was, it, yeah, it's, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting thing. I I tried to stay fairly true to the uh, to the legend of the Jersey Devil as far as its origins went, uh, where it was um, where it came from, and all that. I actually did uh, some field work by going down to the city where it was born and supposedly. There's people in the area that know where the Jersey Devil, the house that the Jersey Devil was supposedly born in, that that property existed, but it's been very tight-lipped. And they don't want a lot of people traipsing through the area. I have never found it. You know, I guess I was an outsider. You know, I asked some questions around, but no one, either no one knew or no one was willing to tell, which was fine. But, you know, you get the feel for the area. Now, when I was a kid in high school and, and middle school, we used to go camping. Out in the Pine Barrens. So you always heard, you know, the Jersey Devil stories and whatnot. So, you know, there's that sort of lore that's with it when you grow up in this state.
1: What is your feelings on the Jersey Devil itself? Do you feel like there's any credibility to the story? Not necessarily that you believe that there's a cryptid running around if it's a description, but do you feel like there was something that took place? Maybe a a baby that that was born that that maybe was just you know not formed properly or something. What what is your thoughts I mean, on the legend? It
0: could it could be. I mean, you know what? It could be a combination of things. I mean, you you think about stuff that goes back to the. Um, to the mid eighteenth century, late eighteenth century and, and the belief structures that they had in the supernatural or things that they may have seen or odd odd animals that could be mistaken for different creatures. It's quite possible that it could be something. Do I believe in in like the baby shot out of this woman and up the chimney and screamed off into the stormy night as the, as the lightning and thunder crackled away and it screeched off into the distance. I don't believe in, in a literal thing like that. But, you know, there's no, you know, in my research, there's nothing that, that it's just a story that all of a sudden emanated and there's no, um, there's no lineage to it, you know what I mean it's all of a sudden there's there was this story that happened, so there's not a lot of investigation being able to go back to that now there's people down in that area that claim that uh, their family line goes into the same line as the Leeds you know uh, Mother Leeds is the mother of the Jersey devil but um do i i I have a hard time. Taking that leap with it, I know there's people that I've met at various book fairs that and 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 festivals that that believe in it wholeheartedly, and that's fine. That's fine. I would need myself. I would need a little more evidence than um, than just you know someone's word. Like for Bigfoot, I, I I take that as far more of a credible thing than I would the Jersey Devil.
1: Well, that's that's going to be a perfect lead, in because
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you you're just beyond the shadows book that's a two part series
0: yeah the third one is I'm just about done with the third one the first draft is just about finished
1: oh awesome so the reason tell tell everybody why why you actually wrote this book
0: well the, the first the first uh, the first book was sort of written because my kids were huge fans of the show finding Bigfoot when it came on and I was always a fan of of those things of Bigfoot way back in the day when I was a kid and all, and they sort of just asked me, they're like, Dad, could you write a cool Bigfoot book? And I sat down to do it. I actually went out on a BFRO expedition out into the Allegheny Forest in Pennsylvania, and I, cause I wanted to have a sense of what that was about. And so, you know, I just, I, I sort of just took it on and just created these characters and, and and I went with it, and of course it takes place in Oregon. But I had never been to Oregon before; I didn't know anything about it. And so, just using a lot of Google Maps and research and everything, I was able to replicate the forests that everything took place in. I you know, and then I would take a lot of sightings that went on out there and reports, and just sort of cold together this story.
1: Let me tell you what I like so, about this book.
0: Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. You're <laughs> yes. okay. Uh, here's what I like.
1: I can't tell you how many times I've watched a horror movie or something of that nature, and there'll be one person left out of a out of a yeah. you know group, and it's like, you know, when the police show up, they're getting blamed for that, and that's yes, yes, yes. That's kind of the premise here.
0: Well, it it starts off that way. That there was this the the the, the one of the there's two leads, and the, and the the male lead, Chet. Um, He had actually gone to jail because he was the lone survivor of a Bigfoot attack. And, you know, he claims his innocence, but someone had to pay for the crime, even though there was no evidence that really linked him to it. It became circumstantial. He goes, he spends 12 years in jail and then comes back out. But there's guys that had gone back up into that area and found the evidence of the Bigfoot attack that no one else was able to find, and, and then he kind of gets roped back into going back up into that area. Where, again, once again, they encounter Bigfoot, a whole bunch of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what hey, happens when you tempt hey, fate.
0: That's right, that's right, you know, he shouldn't go back, but he goes back, and, you know, it's, it's another mad dash through the, uh, the Oregon thick farce. So, uh, that book, you know what, that, in that book, has done surprisingly well. I, listen, you never know how well a book is going to do, and that book seemed to do very well in the Bigfoot community. And and if you look on Amazon or Goodreads, for the most part, people give it really good reviews, and I've been very, very happy with it. Uh, so much so that I wrote a second book because I had a bunch of people email me or message me on Facebook or told me at different book fairs that I would be at that they really enjoyed the first one, would you write a second one? And the first one was actually written with the idea of being a standalone. And I was able to find enough, enough of a, I guess, leeway in the story that I could make a believable second book. Uh, because the thing about w- writing these books for me is, is I tried to make them as realistic as possible. Uh, That's why I went on one of those um, BFRO expeditions, because I wanted a sense of what one of those research outings was like. You know, there's only so much that you can get from watching the TV show, so I wanted to be there. I wanted to get a sense of the people. I wanted to get a sense of the passion that's there for it. And so in writing it, I just wanted to to have a bit of that realism along with sort of the, the the, the fictionalized version of what could happen on a on an expedition that goes terribly wrong
1: yeah we had a uh, a friend of the show that does some uh, for lack of a better term amateur uh bigfoot hunting and yeah but you know he's he's way more advanced than somebody like me just walking out through the woods just looking around mm-hmm. like a bird watcher but he was telling us yeah. the things that they look for like the the places that they go to it's got to have a a water source, it's got to be this type, and it was all the different things that I never have heard before on any of these shows. So yeah, until you get out there and do something like it, you probably don't know the half of it.
0: Yeah, well, the, well, the one that I went on was, um, was in Allegheny National Forest in the middle of northern Pennsylvania, and it's where the Jacobs photos were taken. Now, I, um, I'm sure some of your listeners who are big foot aficionados know of the Jacobs photos, um, these 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 brothers had um hunt uh trail cams out in the woods you know for hunting you know they're scouting out hunting areas and they spotted what looked to be a baby bigfoot there's two frames and there's been great debate going back and forth as to whether it's an emaciated bear or it's a baby bigfoot um listen people can draw their own conclusions i'm not an expert in that area so i'm you know yeah i don't know But we went to the spot where the trail cam was set up in the tree, and they did the whole thing to scale. And we were out there, and we heard stories. I mean, those people in the area that relayed stories that uh, sounded good. You know, Um, they didn't sound. You know, they weren't like so over the top where you're like, you know, now they're making it up as they go along. I mean, it did sound very truthful. Well, it was interesting. We we never heard or found anything that night. We scared up a couple owls, but we never uh we never came across anything Bigfoot related. You know.
1: Let me ask you this. But it was the, cool? Yeah. The, the Bigfoot community can be very uh fickle. Uh and what yeah. I mean by that is like for example, your your story uh your first book, uh, just beyond the Shadows, it involves a Bigfoot attack. did you get any backlash from people saying, oh, Bigfoot wouldn't have done something like that they're more gentle or
0: did you get any of that at all? no, I didn't you know and and you're right because if uh, there's pl- I, 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 there's plenty of um Facebook groups where they'll you'll you'll hear some of that and I really didn't I really didn't get that. um my second book, which doesn't have uh, nearly the the violence in it because I just took a different a, a different slant with it. Someone who had read the books actually left the note that said, "I think this is more probably what Bigfoot's like than the first book." But they didn't they didn't attack the first book. Um, I think because I I think people didn't do it that way because the first book isn't written. I believe in some like slasher horror B movie style that you know it there's there's a legitimate process going on with this crew that's going out into the woods you know they've got they've got their thermals they've got the audio recordings the video recordings they're doing wood knocks they're they're spreading out throughout the woods in a way that we can triangulate and have communication so i think in a very real way it wasn't anything typical of what you would, you know, like a campy horror movie, if you know what I mean.
1: Right. So let's go on to and, Outpost 9. You've got a really cool story uh, that led you to read the, uh, to write that book.
0: Yes. Um, I had, uh, we had, we had um, Superstorm Sandy that came through here, I guess, like seven, eight years ago now. And we lost power here for 10 days. And we live in a pretty packed area. New Jersey's got a lot of people. And we lived, and so we had zero power for ten days last week of um, October into November, and we were we were spared that we had decent weather though. The last few days it started to get chilly, and we had to run the wood burning stove and whatnot. But one of the ideas that kept coming around was, you know, we were standing in, or waiting in long lines for gasoline. If you didn't have a generator, your food was going to go to waste, you know, because it's only going to last so long. Um, you, you certain access to different places became tough. So I just took it and just expanded on that. And what would happen, and in the book, that's what happens, is the the, the initial reaction to why this guy becomes a prepper is, uh, or what he calls a mini prepper, is because this massive storm takes out the Northeast. And I just took my experience and went with it even further. And then the guy was a little paranoid and goes, you know, we got to move to a more rural area. And so they move there and, and he starts, you know, prepping to a degree, but not hardcore prepping, you know, because his wife and other people are like, you know, it's a little, little too bonkers to go that far overboard with it, but it was just in case. But then that's when this flu virus comes and then absolutely just wipes out, you know, like two thirds of the earth's population, which some scientists believe that it could happen at some point. So not, not necessarily flu virus, but some kind of virus could come out and and do something like that, but it was based on my experience at Superstorm Sandy, and, and again, one of the things that I would notice when I was outside is that I started seeing strange people walking through my neighborhood that you would, I've never seen before. You know, they're wearing <laughs> hoodies pulled over. It's almost like they were scoping things out. You know, and it's like, wait a minute, this is really creepy. And, you know, I'm trying to run a generator. I'm running a generator for my stuff, and i got an extension cord going across the street to my neighbors, keeping, uh, keeping one of their freezers going. You know, and so you start getting protective, and you get a little paranoid, because, to be quite frankly, you know, I didn't own any kind of guns or anything like that not that i wanted to have it sitting by my side by the sh- by the, the generator or anything but you know what the whole idea of protecting yourself starts to come to the uh, to the front when uh, all of a sudden you realize wow i'm at the mercy of, of a lot here
1: it's funny that you bring up the fact of seeing the strangers in a neighborhood because we i had a, a friend of mine that He's had a similar story. They were out without power for like three or four days. It would not as long as yours, but he was telling me he'd lived in his neighborhood for like twenty years, and he said during, on about the third day he would see people walking around the neighborhood that he had never seen in, in his twenty years of living in that neighborhood. So it's funny that both of those oh, stories are yeah. similar.
0: Yeah, it's very bizarre when all of a sudden you start seeing strange strangers. And so uh, well, I have a good re- I live on a cul de sac, and so I have a good relationship with all of my neighbors. Um, and we would actually get together and, and talk about it. Like if this is going to be a prolonged thing, you know, uh, yeah, what are we going to do? I mean, thank God it wasn't to the, to the point that, you know, you couldn't get gas at some point or you couldn't go out to eat or things like that. But really, you, you you know, you have your money invested in the food in the freezer and all that stuff and you, and you don't want it to go to waste, you know, you're, you're there to protect it.
1: Yep, and and that's and, right at that time of year where it was not cold
0: enough to be able to keep it outside,
1: so you were that's kind of right, stuck. that's right, it would
0: have all gone to waste. And then you realize that you know, I mean, I had a had a five gallon container of gasoline, yeah, but that's just for you know, that's for my lawnmower, that's for the the snowblower, that's for the for the generator if you lose power for a couple hours. It's not for ten days, you know what I mean, right? So we actually, uh, one of the times, you know, we took turns collecting gas and going out and get gas because you would sit in line for almost two miles to get gas. Oh, wow. Which you then later learned that if I really would have just drove over into Pennsylvania 45 minutes from here, I could have gotten <laughs> gas a lot quicker and been back. <laughs> Your world kind of shrinks in a way, you know. When when you kind of get into the into that emergency mentality, you don't really want to go that far. You you want to stay home because there's there's, there's this like there's this protectionism that sort of comes over you. You know, you I got to protect the family. I got to protect the house. Type of thing.
1: Plus that that forty five minute trip to Pennsylvania, you probably would have had five tolls on the on the uh, Jersey Turnpike. <laughs>
0: Yeah, if I went that way, I would have. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we 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 do have a lot of those. <laughs>
1: yeah, we found it out the hard way in October. So, um, <laughs> so let me. So so the third book of the, of the Just Beyond uh, the Shadow series is. You said you're you're finished putting the wraps on.
0: What else yeah, do you I'm have planned? Well, I'm finishing up the third book, and here was the thing. To write the second book, I needed something, again, I wanted to make it believable, and and I found an out in the story that I could make a second one, and I knew kind of how I wanted to go with it, and I actually think the second book is written better than the first book. I just think it's more developed. Uh, people, again, were going, I hope there's more to the series, I hope there's more to the series, and, you know, listen, these two books have, you know, I mean, I'm not going to retire on them, but... They've done, they've done all well. They've done okay for me. You know, they put, they put a little extra scratch money in your pocket. <laughs> and, um, but the thing was, is what's the story? What's the story going to be? So what I wound up doing with this was I got the two main characters, uh, Chet and Corinne. They've, they've formed a nice entity. They're, they're doing serious Bigfoot work in, um, in the, the Northwest. And then they, there's a, um, a doctor, from the, the, a university in Nepal who has stumbled onto some Yeti footage and some Yeti experiences, and he calls on them to come out to help them track down Yeti.
1: That's a nice and twist. So
0: the te- and, the tw- and so this team goes out to Nepal, and they go up into the Himalayas and, and start to, uh, you know, now we're going to have Yeti encounters rather than Bigfoot encounters. Because I just didn't know what else to do. I was thinking about bringing it to the East Coast and, and doing something in upstate New York because the Whitehall area of upstate New York, uh, Western Vermont has a lot of Bigfoot stories. And I thought about doing something up there, but I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a, with a, I couldn't come up with a story that I could work through. But the but going to the Himalayas for whatever reason and doing yeti that 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 seemed to, to work better.
1: So what do you think? As far as you have anything planned already for future books that you just like at least an idea that you you want to work something out on or are you just kind of focusing on one at a time.
0: No, I have other. I have a variety of other uh, book ideas already sketched out. They're a little bit different than than this. One of them. Is, is you know, the working title is called the Eternals, and it's about fallen angels, and it's about the fallen angels who were, who have been cursed to work walk the earth until until the end of mankind, and so now they uh, they've come about knowing that mankind can end itself, and they're conspiring for mankind to destroy itself. But then I'm gonna have other, these other angels who want the redemption of, of mankind to, to happen and work against them. So I've, I've actually written out some of that to some degree. Um, and another idea that I had was about creating the perfect, the perfect genetic human being. And, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily an original idea, but they did actually, I have a group that created the perfect genetic person. It was a woman character and um and she doesn't realize that she is the perfect species like she doesn't get sick she heals real well but she just never thought anything of it because she grew up in this family but it turned out that she was part of this genetic experiment but was kidnapped by her parents or no not her parents she was taken out by the people who were to watch over her and then they they you know they brought her off and then they hid somewhere in the United States because they didn't think this was right morally or ethically, but then her location is eventually found out, and then she eventually learns her true identity. And then what do you do with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know... But again... I was going to say, I know how I felt when I found out I was the perfect species, and it's tough to deal with. I feel <laughs> I felt bad for her.
0: All those other poor people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah those are some of the other ideas that i have um i actually wrote a second part to outpost nine uh, there's a second book that continues on but i haven't sat down to um to clean up that that one and to be honest with you the reason that i've been writing the bigfoot books is because people ask and they make me the most money
1: yeah that makes sense
0: and you know and so some of it is a business but i but i also won't I won't cheapen myself to just write a schlock book to write schlock. I, I will be honest, this, this third book has been really tough to write. Usually it takes me four or five months to write a first draft, and this one's taken me almost a year. Oh, wow. Because I've just, because I've just struggled with trying to keep that same spirit, trying to keep that same realism, and, and I want the people who have enjoyed the first two books a lot to enjoy the third one, I don't want anyone to write a review like he threw in the towel. He, you know, you know what I mean. This is just for the sake of a third book. I don't want that. I want to keep the spirit uh, of of the first two books going. I also want to honor the people who enjoyed the first two books who who are who are passionate about the subject and and uh, and I want to and I want to honor that. And it's, and it's tough. And, you know, when you're, when you're trying to come up with this third idea and you're, and you're, and I'm trying not to retread through ideas that I've already used. So, that's, that's been somewhat of a struggle. Though, the book is, I should be, I'm hoping to finish up this week or next week the whole whole first draft and, you know, I, I regain some momentum for the end. And um, I, think, I think I think people enjoy it. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that I could have it out by the spring, but that could be a bit ambitious.
1: Well, obviously, once you get it out, uh, hit us up. We'll put some links and stuff up on our Facebook page <laughs> and Twitter.
0: I'll appreciate that. i appreciate that.
1: JJ, it's been awesome but, having you on the show. Tell everybody how they can get your books and, and keep up with you on social media. Oh,
0: I'm on JJ Crane, author on Facebook uh jj crane author on instagram and all my books are available on amazon you get a soft cover or you know or ebook whichever one is the most convenient for the people you know are reading Uh, they they, you know they it's a print on demand so it's boom it'll be there you know within a day or two that you order it
1: sounds fantastic Um, i appreciate you coming uh, on buddy and we'll be looking forward to talking to you in the future
0: well thank you so much for having me on it was was a great time
1: he's so much fun he's got so much personality yeah so i can't wait to get him on again we'll definitely get him on again especially when he's got his uh new books coming out and we got some other stuff but we got got a few other surprises that uh, he may be working on for so good exciting all right well that puts another one in the books it does (laughs) And we just want to say we love you guys. Thank you all for hanging in there with us. And hope we are doing these stories justice for you all. Yep, we hope so. Thank you guys. We'll see you soon. Love you.